Okay, it's another episode of It's Only Fucking Advertising. I'm your host, Aaron Starkman. Hi there, hello. So today, we have Susan Cradle on the show. She's the global chief creative officer of FCB. She runs the whole world creatively. She's a big deal. And I met her a while back, and we were on the can jury for film many years ago. Controversial statement coming up. That experience was a little bit fucked. It was so political. And the fact is, can is a little bit rigged. I'm sorry to say it. Those of you who have judged can can probably back me up on this. Now, some years, it's way worse than other years in terms of the political bullshit that goes on. But the year I judged with Susan was terrible. All kinds of shady deals going on and some weird stuff. And I'm going to ask her about it. I doubt she'll touch this topic with a 10-foot pole because of her position that she is a global CCO. But we'll see. Uh, she was there, and uh, we'll see if she remembers how fucked up it was. And hopefully we can just have an honest dialogue about award shows being a little bit corrupt. It's a controversial thing, and uh, let's see. Let's see where it goes. Okay, so we have some sponsors for today. We got Radke Films, based out of Toronto. Radke's roster of local and international talent includes some of the most sought-after directors in the world. They've got all the fancy awards, can, Clio's, AICPs, and more. Uh, Rethink's doing some work with them right now with one of their directors, John O. Holmes. It's going well. We have another sponsor, Saints Editorial, based in Toronto. Award-winning editors, uh, a great space. You just walk in there. It just smells of success. Uh, it also smells like cookies. They make some of the best cookies in the world. I'm just telling you, every time you walk in there, you go right to the kitchen, there's all these cookies that just came out of the oven. Uh, do you want to edit in a space that smells like cookies? I do. You go win some awards for your spots and uh, eat some cookies, have some milk. That's a good time right there. Okay, Saints Editorial. So looking forward to chatting with Susan. Uh, a little bit nervous to bring up this controversial lightning rod topic, um, but also just uh, excited to, to learn more about her uh, and her career and how she got to where she got to. Okay, it's only fucking advertising. Episode number four is coming up. It's only fucking advertising. Hey, Susan. Hey Aaron, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm all right. How's your uh, How's your day going? You know, it's been really busy, back to back, like conversations about how to do things better. Well, that's good. And what's like a What's a What's this week like? What's a typical week like? You know, typical. There's not a typical week, and that's what I think has been interesting about this job is that every week there's a different kind of problem to solve, and sometimes it's a creative work problem, you know, the work problem. Sometimes it's, you know, a dissatisfied, uninspired person problem. Uh, sometimes there are incredible opportunities, which are not problems. 
Um, so it's, it's a good thing. You have yeah. to be versatile, I think. Now, I, uh, I've been discovering a bit of a success formula, which is not to do much research. Because <laughs> then I'm just, I was so much, <laughs> I'm so much more interested. And I'm, I kind of just love, I, I just truly love doing this. And I, I love sitting down okay. and talking to people I really admire like you. Okay. So uh, I don't know that much. But what I did look into, I saw this awesome story about how you got into this. I read a little bit, but I stopped reading because I wanted to be surprised. But uh, <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to hear how, how you got into this business. It's not, for our listeners, it's not a typical story. <laughs> well, there were a few, there are a few moments, you know how, like when you believe that the universe puts things in front of you and then you don't really see them, but that later you go, oh, wait, there was a path. So I would say the first time that I even thought about the business of advertising, I was clerking for a law firm one summer, and uh, I had to serve a subpoena to a business, and it turned out the business was an advertising agency. And so as I was waiting to serve the subpoena, um, I saw these like people walking around in blue jeans and T-shirts, and they looked kind of like fun. And I'd never seen people that looked like that in an office before. And I remember asking him, like, what do you all what do y'all do here? Is this, and, this, <laughs> like, are you in, and are you in New York or somewhere else? And now I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. You're in Greenville, South Carolina. Would <laughs> 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 well, you remember the agency well, name? Remember what the agency yeah, was? It was called Hen- yeah, it was called Henderson. Okay, cool. Jim Henderson started it. I don't know the exact year, but it was when there were a lot of textile companies and it was before, you know, b- before a lot of ways to communicate via, you know, what we're doing right now, virtually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he thought, you know what, there are a lot of companies based here. Instead of them flying up to New York, I wonder if I should just try to open an agency here. And it was quite successful um, for quite a while. But yeah, with Henderson Advertising. So then how did you make your way on over uh, to New York? And how did you become a writer? All that. Well, I um, when I went to Chapel Hill, I wanted to be a drama major. Um, but I enjoyed it too much, and uh, I was doing too well, so I thought it must have been a flaky major, so I thought I'd better pick a harder major, mm-hmm. and journalism sounded really hard, and so I went over to the journalism school and got an F immediately, and I thought, this is the school for me, because it's going to be a challenge, <laughs> and... Uh, I love, love, love that. <laughs> I, the, yeah, the thinking is really, really good, and um, <laughs> yeah, and then I kept getting frustrated with the writing because they kept saying I was putting too much color commentary in and writing more of an op-ed piece, and I really just was supposed to keep it really dry, and I was not satisfied with that answer. And they said, you might be a better candidate for the mass communication school, which includes marketing and advertising. So I headed upstairs, met a professor named John Sweeney, who I'm still very close to today, Um and I really liked him just as a human being, and he had been a copywriter in Chicago. So I thought, man, if that's what he chose to do, I think he's pretty cool. Maybe that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I had had a fascination with New York City since I was 16 and um, decided that after college I would go up there for three months. A lot of my friends were doing that, you know, see Europe and, you know, over the summer. Mm-hmm. And I did not have the money to do that. So I thought, well, I'll just go up to New York City and I will just visit all the, you know, Chinatown, Little Italy, mm-hmm. you know, visit visit all the neighborhoods and I'll do my own sort of tour of Europe in one city. Right. And when I got up there, you know, I also thought, you know, I should th- think about this advertising thing. And um, 
Somebody said go to go to a magazine stand and look at all the trades to get an idea of what you should do. And that summer of 1985, BBDO was on the cover as you know agency of the year. And my mom had always said it's better to not be at the top of a great place than to be at the top of an average place. Right. So I went in and asked him if there was anything I could do at the agency to walk through those doors every day. And it turned out after getting a BA at the journalism school at the University of North Carolina, the only thing I was qualified to do is give the receptionists their bathroom breaks. So that's what I signed up so for. So that's where you start and, in, at BBDO. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a, someone that comes in and gives the receptionist their, their bathroom breaks. Yeah, you just go floor to floor and you go, would you like to have a coffee, a cigarette, or a bathroom break? And if they say yes, you sit there and for about 10 minutes, you man the phones. And I think they thought, you know, sitting there for 10 minutes, I couldn't do too much damage. This is already the, so great, that's what I did. This is already the greatest interview ever. Uh, who, <laughs> who I'm talking to and the position you're in and how you started. And you were, you were what, 20, 24 years old or something 20. like that? 20. 20. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I had to go to school early because we didn't have any money for babysitters. So mom got me in when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there. <laughs> I was always a year younger than I should have been. So you're 20 years old. You're mm-hmm. you're helping out on bathroom breaks, mm-hmm. and then what happens? This is fascinating. I decided I didn't tell people I was there to be the bathroom break girl. I told them I was an intern. Because that sounded a little better, and then I it's called. Better, all it's the better heads on a business department. card. It's better on a business card. Yeah, you know, yeah. just yeah, <laughs> in, intern versus bathroom break girl. Yeah, bathroom <laughs> so, break girl doesn't so roll I, off the tongue. That so <laughs> I kind of stretched the truth a little bit. Um, at BBDO, as I talked to everybody, it felt like all the other departments were in service to the creative department, and so I thought, you know, maybe that's where I should really focus is the creative department. So I looked for. First of all, I had to teach myself how to type 70 words without a mistake because back then there were no computers and there were secretaries that really did have to type everything. And that seemed to be the next step. And so I looked for a desk in the creative department and there was this one desk that had a bunch of art directors um, that you had to take care of but no writers. And so Mm. I thought, well, maybe if there are a lot of art directors, I could volunteer to help them if they needed a writer. And so... I learned to type and got on that desk, and it sort of started to happen. They would be like, yeah, I could use some help with a headline or a thing or whatever. And that's kind of how it started. I did okay at school, in high school. I had a class called mm. – uh, I had a, a typing class. It was an actual, actually a class, grade 9 typing. I failed it three times. <laughs> It's funny. Ms. Baker tried to teach me to type, and it didn't go well. I did okay, but not great. Mrs. Uh, Samanis uh, failed me a couple times. But uh, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing I'm a writer. You're a writer. <laughs> well, it's also it, it's also really weird, too, because, you know, kids today, like, typing is like speaking or, or even easier. You know, and it's so funny that it when is. I say, well, I had to learn how to type, they're like, What? <laughs> We do that on our sleeve. What do you mean? I, like, I used to pay people thirty dollars to do my papers in college. But there's autocorrect, so it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, it's a lot different. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> so, okay, so you're helping out. You're helping out art directors, and and mm-hmm. what what hap- What happens next? Well, I I had this. Um, I, the main person that I reported into as a secretary was. Um, 
a CD who was a woman. And when I told her I'd really like to be a creative, she said, you know, look, it's great. You can, um, you know, I'll give you the briefs and you can sit in on meetings and you can listen and it'll just kind of be like an organic way of learning the job. I'm like, thank you. Well, then she left. (laughs) And the new person that came in, I said, hey, you know, with this last person, we sort of had this arrangement that I was working up to like a junior writer job. And I just hope we can continue that arrangement with you. And she came back a couple of days later and said, you know, um, we're not going to do that because my boss thinks if we start promoting one secretary, more secretaries will want to be promoted. And we just can't have that. And I have to say, you know, it just it was it broke my heart. But it was the best thing that could have happened because um, it motivated me to to not go the slow route of, you know, from secretary to kind of working my way into the group. Right. And I had been moonlighting for a couple of other creative directors, just helping type scripts at night. And one of the creative directors had said, you know, if you ever need, need anything, you know, let me know. And so I was so upset that this pack that I had made had been broken. I put the most lame portfolio in with a bunch of other yeah, junior copywriters that were applying for a job in his group. And I ran into him. I, I remember it was a rainy day. He was crossing Madison Avenue. And I said, hey, you know that time that you said if I ever needed anything to ask? I said, I just put probably the worst portfolio at, in your office, and it's mine. And I said, but I, if you give me a chance, I will work harder than anybody. Um, I promise. I just, I, I got to go. I got to I gotta start this thing. And I remember another secretary and I went out for lunch um, at Grand Central Station, and I came back from lunch, and there was a message on my desk, and it just said, you're hired, kiddo. Oh, that's the best, and it's from him. (laughs) Yeah, and I worked for him for, I think, 23 years, or until he retired, and then he gave me the keys to his office. So that's kind of cool. Oh, this is so good. And I have to say that if anybody had... Bet. I looked at him and said, man, if anybody had bet, you would give the keys to your office as you retire to me, this southern girl you met when I was 21 years old. Nobody. We would have won. <laughs> we would have won. won a lot of money because be I was the long shot. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no, well, that's an insane story. And so then you got your first job. And uh, I'm assuming it. Uh, <laughs> my first job was twenty four thousand dollars. I'm assuming you're a bit less. It was a few years before. Well, I was I was making twenty four thousand dollars with overtime as a secretary and as a junior copywriter. I got the incredible salary of fourteen thousand five hundred. dollars So you got demoted. So I took a ten thousand dollar ten thousand dollar pay well, cut. How <laughs> how do you live in New York City for fourteen thousand dollars? <laughs> Um, I coat checked twice a week at the post house um, where I collected some pretty good tips that were all cash. And and then the no, IRS no. is going to call me. We, and then, we, can, we can edit it out. It's all good. <laughs> I don't think they want it. wasn't the statute that much. of limitations. <laughs> and then I taught. <laughs> right, right. It's been a long time. And then I taught aerobics um, at a gym. And so I had two extra jobs. Um, that I eventually had to okay, stop so doing. How, how long you were at BBDO for a very long time? How, how many years was it? Twenty four. Twenty four years. Um, so yeah, I was going for. I was. I really was going <laughs> for a record. I thought I could start and end my career at one agency in the creative department. I was like, I'm not sure. You know that that at my generation, anyone had had or is doing that. So 
Everyone's like, yeah, everyone leaves after a couple of years now. Everyone's really restless. The, yeah. The kids. So I wanted to ask about, you know, some highlights while you were at uh, BBDO, some of the big successes, some things you remember mm-hmm. really well. What, uh, what, what stands out? And it's 24 years, a long time. What stands out? <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> a lot. Like you say that and it's like, you know, they say right before you die, your life flashes before your eyes. I hope nothing bad's <laughs> going to happen to me right now. Um, but I think my the first really incredible positive, you know, like just something that I just really I, – I'll never forget that day is when my partner Steve Rudder and I went out to M&M's or to Mars and we were going to – we were – asked by our agent by BBDO to run the M&M's business and we weren't terribly elated because it was like well it's cartoon characters and it's to kids and they're packaged goods and it sounds like they do a lot of testing <laughs> this is not gonna this doesn't seem like it's the way forward and we went out and we had our first meeting with the CMO who was a man named Paul Michaels who went on to become the mm-hmm. CEO I'm not even sure if he was this I think he was the CMO yeah. when we started and we had a conversation, a candid conversation with him about the business, the brand. And he was so incredible. I mean, it was so much fun. The conversation was so energizing. And I remember getting in the car with Steve and I was like, don't tell anybody how great an opportunity this is going to be. You know, let's just let them think it's, you know, business yeah. as usual. And it was, I just remember feeling electric walking out going, I can't wait to work with this person. And I can't remember how many years we worked underneath him as he kept moving up and up and up. But he taught me so much about leadership, and he was an incredible believe, believer um, and made made you want to work hard for him. That's awesome. Um, he made your successes amazing and your failures, you know, were like not that big of a deal. Um yeah, it was. I I feel so. Let's. So talk, I know the work that came out of here, but let's. Our listeners may not. Let's talk about uh, what you're most proud of working on M and M's. Well, I think that it was. It was before you know we this whole business got into. That it's not just about TV. You know, it's not just about traditional advertising. And I think we were fortunate that M and M's didn't have as big a budget as you would think an icon you know, brand would have in America. Mm -hmm. So we had to work, we had to make our media dollars work harder. And I think we had to play more with non-traditional ways of doing advertising. And one of the things that we, thinking that we brought back earlier is what if we stopped being a chocolate company and started being an entertainment company? That that can look, that's sold right there. Was that in a deck? That has to be, uh, (laughs) that's a good... I don't even think we did decks back then. I think we oh, just you know so we have an idea. I'm, yeah, <laughs> this would be I am, cool. As a CMO, <laughs> I am on the edge of my seat when I hear that. That is good. Yeah, and then and then we said you've got these six colors in your bag, and when we researched, you know, cla- you know, comedic ensembles from Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream to, you know, um, the Honeymooners to you know, um, things that were running during that time, Cheers, Taxi, I think Friends had come out, maybe Seinfeld. We're like, it's usually about six characters that make up a great comedic ensemble. So why don't we ma- – we want to we make each of the characters one of those typical um, archetypes. And then we said, you know, so you're going to have the blustery, angry, thinks he's always right character. You're going to have the idiot savant who – 
doesn't seem like the character knows much, but sometimes, but life is just always kind of happily working out. You're going to have the paranoid, you know, worried character. You're going to have the omnipresent observer that sort of com- makes commentary on everything and is pretty cool. And then you're going to probably have, you know, a sexy sort of I'm, I'm good with me, um, powerful character. Uh and then maybe one that's a little bit more nerdy and fussy and, you know, doesn't really get the rest of the group. And that's where we started. And just to be clear to everybody, these are the M&M characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So red's blustery, yellow's idiot savant, green's sexy, powerful, confident, blue, observer, very cool, um, orange is nervous, uh, and then brown we never <laughs> got to. While I was there, but obviously we had some ideas. We just couldn't ever get it right. And then after I left, they brought Brown out as – and you you can see with the glasses that they're sort of leaning into what we had envisioned, which was sort of this intellectual comedic character. And it's still going on. So does so, so even, even you know after you've left the company and after you come up with this campaign all these mm-hmm. years later, uh, do you get any sense of pride when you see – you know Danny DeVito as a, as an Eminem character on the Super Bowl. I don't know who was he. Was he who was the red guy? Anyway, or the yellow? He was red. Yeah, yeah, he was red. So, so do you? Uh, he was he was red in that spot. Yeah, I, I love so it. Proud. I, yeah, I think that there's. It's funny at FCB we have a a line never finished and. I, you know, we wrote it when I got there, and a lot of people are like, I don't know, I don't know if I love that line, and I'm like, look, I can tell you that the things I'm most proud of in this business are the things that we created that I feel like potentially could be never finished. And to leave legacies and equity for the next group of creative people to come and brand marketers to come in and be able to play with, I mean, what a gift. And, you know, I know every time I got, I mean, even the characters were a gift to to us. You know, we shaped them and changed them a little bit, but, um, you know, that we started with something. You know, I think... um, it's such it's such a wonderful thing to leave. Uh, equity is because equity. It's so when you have a shorthand and people already have an understanding of of something, then you can really be creative with it. If you have to keep teaching what your idea is, it's kind of like the first couple of shows in a sitcom. You got to introduce everything in the idea, and it's really hard to be nimble and creative with that. But if you if you leave equity, and then you let that equity collide with culture of the time and technology yeah. and stuff like that, it, it really produces pretty incredible Absolutely. creative. Was there anything else you were super uh, proud of from <laughs> from BBD? 24 years is a long time, so if you, if you got one more, that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, there, was, there was a commercial that I wrote right at the beginning, you know, right when I was allowed to sort of play on TV, which you had to, you know, you had to be a little seasoned before they started listening to your scripts. But um, with with a art director who's now a director, Bruce Hurwitt, we wrote a spot for um, Pizza Hut, and it was just for the NCAA yeah. finals. And uh, it's just a little boy playing basketball um, on a on an empty basketball court, and he's dribbling, and you can hear the commentary in his head. You know what he thinks the sports caster saying, and. Um, I wrote it based on when my brother and I used to go out at halftime during UNC basketball games and the, you know, how we would play and what we would think and what we would say. 
Wait a second. And what do you? What I just? I just. Oh man, I'm so sorry. You got to New York in what year? This is relevant to what you're talking about right now. Eighty five. Eighty five. Was Michael Jordan not at UNC? In yeah, he was in my class. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. That is pretty. <laughs> He he left before I did, um, but yeah, he um, he was he was in my freshman class, and he was friends with my sweet mate. But I was so intimidated because I had worshipped UNC basketball players since I was like five years old that I never spoke with him. I mean, I never said hello or anything. I just run by, just freaked Unbel- out. Unbelievable. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of a shame. I've changed a little bit, but I still probably would run by oh with my, my head. Oh my God, Michael Jordan was my favorite uh, athlete of all time. Yeah, it was beautiful. Are there to articles watch. on this? Have you talked about this uh, on the record before? Twenty times? <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever. This is great. This is great. This is there. You go. <laughs> so there you go, Aaron. Way to do there investigative you go. You journalism. Hear that, audience, I did not. I did you not. Found it. Uh, I did not cheat. I did not find that online. I got that out of Susan. She was Michael Jordan's classmate. Maybe maybe somebody asked somebody asked me. It's like, why do you still think you haven't made it yet? And I'm like, well, maybe the answer is because when your classmate is. My Michael Jordan, it's, the bar is pretty uh, yeah. damn high. <laughs> it's like, I'll never get there. Yeah, I think he's worth $10, $10 billion now. He could probably just buy the whole network. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, okay, sorry. I, and, and I didn't mean for that detour, but please continue the story right. about the spot that relates to your days at UNC. Well, I do, I do think that writing as a one of the few females in the creative department with a bunch of guys to to – during, you know, we were all pitching ideas and for a female to get the NCAA spot, you know, of that year as the writer, um, you know, it was, it, it was pretty significant within the group. I kind of earned some respect. Um, and it also made me proud being from being a Tar Heel to have actually written a spot based on basketball, uh, you know, that ran during the NCAA early on in my career felt pretty good that you know what and and that's amazing uh it there's this weird thing that happens in this business where guys work on guy stuff it just seems to be a thing and (laughs) women work on women stuff guys get beer women get tampons and things like that and it's (laughs) and I, i find it i find it so strange uh i just wanted to say you know, you've talked about some of some of your mentors. Mm-hmm. My mentors are two women uh-huh. uh, named Elspeth Lynn and Lorraine Tao. Great women. They're just amazingly inspiring individuals, and they taught me most of what I know. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting. You're talking about your first major brief being about basketball, a brief not normally given to women. Mm-hmm. Now, they made their mark on a brief – that should have been given to men based on on history right. and precedent. And it was for men's boxer shorts. Women shouldn't know what it feels like to, to wear men's boxer shorts. And they knocked it out of the park. It won all kinds of awards. It was for Fruit of the Loom, one of the most famous campaigns in Canadian history. I think it's good to switch things up, mm-hmm. not be stereotypical in the briefs we get. Women shouldn't get all female product briefs and men shouldn't get all male product briefs. Uh, I, I think there should be a balance. There's different different perspectives on different things. That, that can only be good. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's funny because I, I see people using it on both sides. Like the women will say, 
women should work on products that are for women because we know better the stories and the truths or whatever, you know, and so that's one of the reasons you should have more women. But I kind of take the approach, too, of the sort of angly uh, way of thinking about things, which is it's also very interesting to observe culture of a group that you're not in, and sometimes you see things that that group takes for granted. So, you know, I think it works both ways. I think that sometimes— It does. Well, it, it totally does. Yeah, and I don't I don't think either is right or wrong, you know. Um, and there, there are some things that I'm like, I just don't think I would be able to tell a story about, like, jock itch. I don't, I don't think, like, that that's—I don't hear enough about it. I don't observe it, you know, so I can't really do a— you know, outside commentation. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know much about it from the outside, and I definitely don't know what it feels like, Henry. You know, as someone yeah. who's experienced it. So that one, I'd probably be like, I don't think yeah. I'd be very good at that. Um, <laughs> but if I can observe behavior, you know, of a group and see things, you know, that maybe somebody in that group couldn't see, that might get me to something interesting. And then I think if you've experienced it. You know, then, you know, I was just talking, just listening to um, Matt Loon, um, Lun, I'm sorry, who uh, was an animator at Pixar and then later a writer. You know, and he was saying that the most successful they were at Pixar was just telling their honest experiences through a creative lens, Mm -hmm. you know, a character. But he said the minute we started making up, you know, when you start making up things, it almost doesn't come off as brilliant as observation of a truth that you see or that you've mm-hmm. been through. Well, So even the basketball spot that I wrote, I, I mean, it came from playing with my with my brother at halftime during mm-hmm. the games. Are you a good basketball player? <laughs> no, no. But I'm a, I was a really good cheerleader. <laughs> I got a decent jump shot, but then, you know, my, my back starts to hurt. So you worked at uh, BBDO for 24 years and things were going really well. What made you decide to... To leave, you eventually ended up at Leo Burnett in uh, Chicago, if I'm right. Right. So I really, like I said earlier, I I've pretty much planned on finishing my career at BBDO. Um, I loved it and I still love it. I mean, the people that are there, I care for very much. But something had happened. Phil Dusenberry had died. And he, you know, to me, Phil was the person who came in in the 60s and built that agency up as a creative superpower and, you know, had had more than a significant role in where BBDO is today. And, you know, David Lubars has done an incredible job of picking up where Phil, you know, stepped off and, and taking, taking BBDO to a whole other place. But Phil, he was the guy. And... A couple of years after he died, I was talking to a young art director, and we were looking at something. I said, you know, I think what Phil would say about this is whatever I said. And he goes, who's Phil? And I'm like, Phil Dusenberry? He goes, I don't know. And I'm like, this man's barely retired, you know, and he's already forgotten. So what am I thinking? What legacy do do I think I'm leaving here? Mm -hmm. You know, besides the day-to-day enjoyment of of working at BBDO. And as that was kind of going through my head of like, what? God, that's so – it felt so weird to me to have watched, you know, a man give so much of his life to one agency and then not even be remembered. And, you know, that sounds 
probably a little egotistical or whatever, but I was like, does it, is anything I'm doing really mattering? And that's when I got the call about the CCO job at Leo Burnett. And in all honesty, I'd never even thought about being a CCO, uh, which is one of the, you know, things that I think we have to make sure that as we're dreaming of our career, how big can we imagine it going? I just couldn't, I didn't even get there in my own head. So I was a little shocked when I got the call. And then um, I wasn't sure. I really was like, I don't want to go to another city I've never lived in and don't know. And New York is amazing and BBDO is great. So no, I'm not interested. And then a couple of women called me and said, hey, we heard that you got offered this job. Would you please take it? <laughs> Love that. <laughs> I'm like, why? And they're like, we we need women to take these Love jobs. That. And I thought, well, damn it, that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. So I said yes. You know, and Joe and I don't have children. My husband, Joe, uh, we couldn't. I wanted to, and, and it just didn't work out. And when that seemed like a fait accompli, I told him, I said, you know, I think that when we're offered things in the future, we have to look at them differently, which is that we can take chances because we don't have a responsibility of a child. Right. And so I told him, I said, I think, I think, I think we just got that thing that I was talking about. It just arrived. And are you game? And he goes, yeah, let's go. Let's go try it. So we took off to Chicago. I love that. And and you were there for how long? Six years. What stood out? Mm -hmm. I know, I know a lot of the great work that uh, you were part of, but uh, what stands out for you? I like ideas that stick around. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one was uh, all state mayhem campaign that the team wrote, and hopefully they feel like I helped a little bit with. Um, But it was supposed to be a summer campaign, and that was in 2010, and we're— Still going. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so it it made it through the summer. (laughs) It was a successful summer campaign. So six years go by at Leo, and then Mm -hmm. on to the next crazy, crazy job. A global, <laughs> a, glo- a massive, glo- you're in charge of FCB. So how did that come about? Yeah, it's kind of like the <laughs> yeah. same song, sort of same song, yeah. second verse. Carter Murray called. Oh, and, Mar- and Mark, had, we had met on a jury, which is why I think it's so important for women to be on juries. Because if I hadn't been on a jury, I would have never met Mark. And if Mark hadn't seen me co- talking about work on the jury, he may not have ever called. So that's important. Um yeah, Carter called me and he was like, hey, I need a global CCO and I'd like it to be you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I really like Chicago. Uh, global CCO. And I'm really having a nice global time at Leo CCO. Burnett. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Uh, whatever. What's that? <laughs> and then, you know, it's the same thing. How many global CCOs are women? Um, maybe, I don't know. None? I'm not none, sure. One. one. You. Not many. Maybe. You. Just you. Maybe none. Yeah. At the time. Right. At the time. At the time, and it was that same thing. I remember calling, I might as well say it, I called Cindy Gallup, and I said, I got this weird call, and I don't know. I feel like I'm doing good, at, you know, I'm doing well at um, Leo, and I like the team, and I like the work. It's a great shop. It's big. It's got lots of opportunity. I love Chicago, but I've been called to maybe come back and help FCB start a transformation back to a creative agency, and Carter wants me to the global CEO, and she's like, 
Well, you're fucking taking it, well, right? Well, that doesn't you sound know? like Cindy like, at all. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it was like no con- like there was no thoughtful <laughs> conversation about it or the positive. She's like, take the damn right. job. You know. Fuck, so fuck like, shit up. Okay. Yeah, and or, again. Yeah. <laughs> blow yeah, shit up. Yeah, blow shit, yeah, blow shit <laughs> yeah. up. Blow shit up. And, you know, so I talked to my husband again. I said, you ready to, you want to try again? You want to do this again and go on another adventure? And. He's like, all right. <laughs> so we packed up and left and moved back to New York City three almost almost three years so ago. So you're, you're back in New York and um, well, how is all this going? What's the first year like at FCB in this? I'm assuming a bit of a a different role. Well, I was kind of excited. Like just it's different day to day, yeah. Well, I wasn't sure what you do. And and by the way, Patrick Coffey wrote an article about, you know, questioning the, the role or need for the global CCO. And he goes, would you like to comment? I'm like, well, yeah, you are sort of threatening my livelihood. I would like to sort of weigh in on this. But, but I also think that every global CCO I know sort of does a different job. I think we're, you know, depending on the agency, the network, the ask, the remit. Um, but for me... I think it's been the role has been being Carter's partner in how to what what makes a creative agency more creative and looking at culture and you know it's fascinating. I thought my job like I I have to say I was like, "Oh, I'm going to come in in the first 5 months. I'm going to go around and visit all the offices in the world." You know, and just go, hey, how you doing? What do you want to do together? And that's it looked pretty amazing. And I was there like a week and a half, and they're like, we're in a global Clorox pitch, and we we, we need you to run it. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, <laughs> wait, this doesn't sound like the world tour. <laughs> how long was the Clorox pitch? Oh, it's, well, it's took cool. about I think three months. Oh, <laughs> so, easy so peasy. It, light it completely breezy. interfered with. My, yeah, my world tour tour never happened. Um, but you got the Clorox. But it was actually pitch. yeah, you did that. Yeah, <laughs> and it turned and it turned out great because actually getting in and just starting to work with people is probably the best way to 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 jump into the biz, you know, to the role. And I got to meet a lot of people. Like you know, it was it we. It was a global pitch, but mainly um, Chicago and uh, San Francisco, and the client's amazing. Uh, so you won, uh, you I, won I, the I business. Really, that means you won the business. Which yeah, is we good. won. <laughs> yeah, we won the business, which which was kind of funny because Carter goes, "Oh, don't worry," he said, "We're never going to get past the chemistry." You know, meetings or whatever. Probably, we're not going to get very far, but it'll be a fun way for you to sort of get to know people. And then, as we kept moving forward, he goes, "Okay, now I really want it. <laughs> I want to win this." Amazing. We have some questions from our listeners. Yeah. I'm wondering if I could uh, get into. Well, we probably have time for one or two. Let's let me see here. I'm okay. going to get into one or two of these. Uh, okay, here's one. Well, this one's kind of. Oh. Bit of a tough one. So, uh, being a <laughs> being a gay woman, uh, she's talking about herself in an industry. Okay, that- <laughs> I was about to say, I, 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 not that I mind, but I'm like, wow, I came out. This is amazing, right here. I know. I'm just. I'm just. My, I'm Michael. Seeing- jo- I went to school with Michael Jordan, and I came out on Aaron's. Story. <laughs> yeah. So that, I, okay. that would be a surprise to my husband. I right. think. So I'm just. I'm just. Re- I'm just reading the question. It just dawned on me. Oh, that may uh, come right. off the wrong. Okay. So here's the question. From her okay. being a gay woman okay. in an industry that uh-huh. has a, a lot of <laughs> this is funny that has a lot of old white guys 
funny and not funny. Mm -hmm. I find there's a bit of pressure and responsibility to represent not just me, but others like me coming up. Susan, Mm -hmm. do those thoughts ever creep into your head about having a bit of a duty or responsibility, especially now that you're in a position that is um, truly dominated by men around the globe? That's a good question. That's a good question. Yeah, I think it's tattooed an invisible ink on my left forearm. But yeah, it's, yeah. I, I mean, half the reason I took the last two jobs was to help with this, you know, 3% issue that's now no longer 3%, but still a small, you know, a small number. I do think that it is the responsibility of people that understand people like ourselves to provide empathy and create cultures that we understand um, we can thrive in. And so I really think about the things that I feel like sometimes held me back because I was a female and I didn't have people that understood what I needed to to thrive. And I try to provide those for, you know, the women uh, that work with, that I work with. Um, A perfectly... This is I won't say who, but there was a woman who I we all admire very much in our um, company, and she was having some emotional up and downs, and the guys were freaking out like she's gonna quit, she's gonna quit, she's miserable, and I'm I'm like no, she's peri- perimenopausal, and they're like what? <laughs> I'm like she's <laughs> perimenopausal. This is this is just hormone stuff. This isn't this isn't like real stuff. Right. Like this isn't she's not going to stick with this. Right. Tomorrow she's going to be fine. Yeah. You know, and I wouldn't know that if I hadn't gone through it. Right. You know, where it's like, you know, my husband would be like, you've got three more days of these hormones and then you're going to be happy again. You know, you're going <laughs> to love this job again. And you know, I think just that's a it's it's funny, but it also is being in there and protecting, you know, the truths of 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 what someone goes through that you know better than the majority. And, yeah, I do feel that responsibility. And I, you know, I have to say that, you know, it's really hard. It's The hardest part for me is when I see a female not doing a good job, you know, or not working out and having to make that decision. It's painful. Um, and I go, you know, I try to go the extra mile uh before we make that decision of have we really given this person the right environment to thrive versus asking her or him or, you know, I, I right now, you know, women have been a, a big focus for me. But, you know, are we asking them to assimilate into a culture versus to bring their authentic selves to that culture? And are we giving a room to do that and support to do that? Yeah, and and I do think we have that responsibility. Yeah, that's a great, a great, great answer. I have another question here. Another, I'm, I'm going to skip. That's a stupid question. I'm going <laughs> to skip that one. This, oh, this one's a bit of a novel, but yeah. Hey, Susan, I got uh, asked to judge an award show uh, recently as a freelancer! Exclamation mark. I feel a bit conflicted as a woman. Uh, I love that award shows are finally doing what's right and getting to a 50-50 balance with men and women. But if I'm totally honest, I wonder if I was chosen purely on merit. I haven't had a hit in a few years. Maybe it was partly because of just meeting a quota. Makes me kind of sad. I feel kind of bad 
to some of my best friends who are men and are getting passed over. Uh, Susan, you're such an inspiration to me and one of uh, the biggest names in the business. I know you're at a place where this stuff wouldn't enter your mind, but has it ever? Am I nuts to feel this stuff? I mean, it's, a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a novel, yes. but that's really I mean that's really interesting. Yes, yes, it has entered my mind. Um, you know, am I just and I'm am I just here because of my sex? Uh, and by the way, I think that sometimes I win because I'm the woman. I don't think that I I, I mean I've been involved with curating juries. You don't just get on because you're you know, checking a box. You have to have had some demonstration of of talent. So I, most most people that curate juries are a little, they're snobby, you know, Absolutely. and they, they do want to put together, they want to put together good juries. So you must have done something that they admire. And yeah, you might have, if, they, if they're five people and you help make the jury more diverse, you're going to get it. And as a friend of mine said, she said, Susan, every time that you think you got the extra leg up because you were a woman, think back about the first 20 years when you didn't get the extra leg up because you were a woman. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I was always forgotten. They forgot to include me. They forgot to ask me. I had to go in and go, hey, it's me. I had to, you know, when I walked into a meeting, I had to explain that I didn't get the coffee that I was there to present the work. You know, and all those times that because you were a woman, you were sort of oppressed. Well, guess what? Sometimes to get to the right balance, you're going to have some opportunities where you're kind of getting the leg up. And that made me deal with that a little bit better, which is like, that makes sense. We're balancing this thing out. Um, and, you know, you can't be offended by being oppressed by being a woman and then not be able to take advantage of being a woman. Yeah. I've been on a lot of juries over a number of years. The worst juries are juries that are, are dominated by men, uh, especially alpha males in the room. It gets so shitty. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, a hundred percent. It should be 50% at least, at least. You know what? The work that I've, that I've seen lately as, as this balance has gotten right has just been better. It's just been better and better in, exactly. in recent years. It, it makes our industry better. And what's so cool is that like, you know, is this, is this um, questioner, you know, is saying I'm a gay woman. She sees things that I'll never see through the lens of what she knows and there's no way we're going to take care of bias, you know, and, and understanding that something's inappropriate to put out into the world if we don't have more diverse people looking at work. And I love being in a room of diverse people and looking at a piece of work and seeing what they see that I would have never seen. And they see I see things that they would have never seen. 100%. And it becomes a much more fascinating conversation. And like you said, I think in the end, it makes the work better. It makes our industry better. It does. So I just talked about uh, some shitty juries I was on. I'm going to mention something. The first time we met, and this has, not, and you were you were fantastic, one of the most inspiring people I've met on that jury. But I'm going to tell you when you remember we when we uh, we judged Can a number of years ago. Oh, film. Did we do film together? Yeah, we film. We did film. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. I remember you well. I got along with a few people on that jury, and you were one of them for sure. Um, so smart, so inspiring, and but I'm going to tell you that experience at Cannes 
that particular experience was kind of bad. Now, I heard, <laughs> and I, want, I just want to know, you can tell me if I'm crazy, if you don't remember it this way, but I, this, I'll tell you three controversial things. <laughs> so I was told from a, a number of uh, people who have judged Can before, look out, it can be a, bit, a little bit political, there can be some block voting, and I thought it was all bullshit. <laughs> and I get there, and sure enough, there was some controversial shit going on. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, not a word of a lie. Half, half the jury at various times it can that year, that particular year, wanted to make a deal with me, right? They wanted to make, they wanted to make a deal with me. You pick my thing, I'll pick your thing. This happened. This, this happened. And, and um, there, and... <laughs> and I, <laughs> <laughs> I can I can see I can see my <laughs> I can see me getting that same offer and it was hilarious. Yeah, so you remember so and and then the smoke yeah. breaks. The smoke breaks are a thing at can uh you know three people smoke and then a bunch of people go outside and there's deals going on and uh, that was that particular <laughs> year it was a bad bad year and the the um the jury chair uh, we can bleep it out if we think we're going to get sued, but his name was uh, – <laughs> yeah. that may get bleeped. But um, he called a whole bunch of stuff out, some shenanigans. You know, right. People fighting for things from they, – they, <laughs> they were from New Zealand. They were fighting for something from Spain. They couldn't really describe the concept or anything, but they knew, <laughs> right? And there was – it was – and he said – said, I know what's going on here. I just want to let you know, I know what's going on. I can, I can see it. I know what's going on. And, uh, it was, it was brutal. And I have, I have said no to judging can ever since then. So two, I've been asked two other times and I said no, because it was a traumatic, traumatic experience. Uh, I, I remember the guy that asked me, he goes, Hey, you want to do this deal? I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, you vote for my work and I'll vote for yours. I'm like, yeah, but I don't like your work. Yeah, there was a lot of crap. <laughs> and he was like, well, that's, he's like, well, that's not the point. And I'm like, yeah, it kind of is. It's like, if I liked your work, I'd bring it back. But I don't like your work. Okay. Was it so just... I, I, did, I, was not a, I was not a very good deal maker. <laughs> Me neither. So that jury, does that strike you as a bad mm. jury? Am I nuts? As a very political jury. You've done a lot of these. Was that more political than others? Yeah. And, you know, look, look, the, the politics, and look, I have to give... Every year we talk about it, and I'm I'm so naive, and I, I just never have understood why you would want to win like that. You know, it just doesn't – it's such a hollow win that I'm like, I don't get it. But I do understand that, you know, these people, some of them are under pressure from their countries. That just shows how powerful winning something at Cannes is. Yeah. They're under pressure from their networks. They're under pressure from their agencies. And, you know, I feel bad because – you know, you know, I was telling somebody, they were, somebody said, well, you know, Susan, everybody does it. And I said, well, you know, everybody doped at Tour de France, but I'm not sure looking back, any one of them are proud they did, even though they thought that was the only way they could keep up with the competition. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we have to win a little less, you know, to be able to be proud of what we do win. Yeah. And... uh 
I think it, you know, I think it still goes on. And it's a shame because it's it's stupid. I told Terry Savage one time, I said, if I'm going to sell my soul or, you know, compromise my ethics, it's not going to be for a bunch of metal that said I did an ad. You know, it's, 100%. It's not where, that's, that's not where I'm selling out. Yeah. Um, and But unfortunately, I don't think that that's what a lot of people feel. And I think it's leaders have to continue to say, you know, we say, we're trying to say at FCB that awards are a part of the journey, but not the destination. Um, and the destination should be much bigger than winning an award. And hopefully if we, you know, get back to doing great work that builds brands, that solves business problems, that people in the world outside of our industry find, you know, wonderful or interesting or engaging or powerful, that should be rewarded. But I think we've got we, – we, we got our our ambitions a little um, backwards yeah. the last decade or so. I think so. I'd like the industry to clean this up. Something has to be done. I know Can uh, specifically has made some some strides in terms of having yeah. it be uh, you know not nearly as rigged as it was that year uh, we did it together. Yeah. So things are being done, yeah. which is great. But uh, I'll never forget you and I. You, I was sitting about three seats away from you, and we were doing the talk with the press after, where the press asked the jurors mm-hmm. all the questions, uh, and the, and you, there you were, Susan Creedle, United States, Aaron Starkman, Canada, and the and one of the first questions that came out was about this. It was about rumors in the past of uh, block voting. I think it was a it was from a European reporter. And rumors in the past about block voting, uh, was there any of that in politics and was any of that going on this year? And uh, the uh, jury chair, <laughs> we are so going to bleep this because what I'm, about to, what, what I'm about to say is, is, is the reason why. So he took the question on, he was sitting probably right between us, and he took the question, he said, I have uh, never been part of uh, a jury with such integrity. <laughs> Things, <laughs> you know, I've heard these uh, these rumors about Can specifically in the past, and there wasn't even a whiff of that. And I was so proud of everybody from around the world. And uh, <laughs> I, a few of us looked at each other, and uh, and our mouths dropped. And then we just went on to the next question. Um, and it it's was funny, my my mom. <laughs> My mom was a, my mom was a school teacher, and she said the two the words that will never come out of my mouth about you two children is my children would never. She said because every child is, and it's the same way with jury chairs to 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 stand up and say my jury would never or never did is so naive even today. It's yeah. like there's you know there's stuff that goes on, and some of it's small. You know, and some of it's egregious. Um, yeah, and we're human, and you know, it's 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 hard to control it all. Well, I'm glad um, I'm glad that we talked about this, and because uh, yeah. I, I I guarantee you, this is the first time this has ever been talked about uh, in any kind of interview. Fuck, mate. You know, I know people do you know some opinion pieces here and there, but this is uh, yeah. it's good that we're talking about it. So I think we'll uh, I think we'll end it around here. I just wanted to say you are an inspiration. Uh, you're one of my my favorite people in the business, and uh, I remember after 
after meeting you initially in Cannes uh, and just seeing what's happened to your career since then, um, so well deserved. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, I didn't really know that much about you, but you were so impressive in the room. And I just thought, uh, yeah, she's going to be everyone's boss. Well, you saw it long before I did. (laughs) I never saw it. (laughs) Well, it happened. I knew it would happen. And uh, every time I see some some amazing press about you, which happens a lot, you know, I feel really good about it. I've always rooted for you, and I'm going to continue to root for you in the future. Thank you so much for, for doing this, Susan. Okay, thank you for doing this for our industry. Appreciate it. Okay. Talk to you soon. Hopefully see you soon, too. All right. Bye, Aaron. Yeah, okay, bye. It's only fucking advertising. Uh, well, that escalated rather quickly. I can't believe Susan uh, actually went there, and I loved how open and honest she was about the whole thing, about award shows being a little bit corrupt. She was honest about the backroom deals. And I was amazed she did it. I love that she did it. It's a conversation that needed to happen. And award shows need to clean up their shit. I'm sorry. It's time they clean up their act. There are judges that are going to Cannes and other other shows around the world. And they are asked to pick work that they don't even know about, don't even like, because there's some sort of political affiliation uh, with their network. And there's all these shady backroom deals that go on. So it's got to stop. We got to clean it up. I know it's getting a little better, but a lot of work needs to get done to make it perfect. The industry deserves it. People working hard on creative out there, you deserve it. You deserve a fair process and fair shows. So let's let's fix this. Let's fix fix this problem, Adland. Okay. Okay. Really want to thank Sound Lounge in New York City. Use them. They're the best. They're great. Also like to thank Vapor Music Canada and a special shout out to my executive producer and audio director, Ted Rosnick. Thanks for doing all you do. Okay, so I'm gonna wrap it up. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Susan uh, as much as I did. And all kinds of amazing things coming up. Amazing guests have been booked. I'm not going to say their names just in case they back out or have to travel or something. But lots of good things coming up. So stay tuned for the next episode of It's Only Fucking Advertising. It's only fucking advertising.